The Christian Atheist is also available on YouTube, and you will find other great content, including the literature I frequently refer to, on our Simple Gifts podcast. If you find our content helpful, consider supporting us through PayPal at RomansChapter5 at Comcast.net. We here at the Christian Atheist stand for truth above all. The historic Supreme Court Dobbs decision overturning Roe v. Wade is read here without commentary. If we are to meaningfully engage one another on this issue, we must do so by first informing ourselves on the ruling itself. Part 2. The Decision as Drafted by Justice Alito Second Installment The Dobbs Decision The bottom of page 32 2. In drawing this critical distinction between the abortion right and other rights, it is not necessary to dispute Casey's claim, which we accept for the sake of argument, that, quote, the specific practices of states at the time of the adoption of the 14th Amendment do not, quote, mark the outer limits of the substantive sphere of liberty which the 14th Amendment protects. 505 U.S. at 848. Abortion is nothing new. It has been addressed by lawmakers for centuries. And the fundamental moral question that it poses is ageless. Defenders of Roe and Casey do not claim that any new scientific learning calls for a different answer to the underlying moral question. But they do contend that changes in society require the recognition of a constitutional right to obtain an abortion. Without the availability of abortion, they maintain, people will be inhibited from exercising their freedom to choose the types of relationships they desire, and women will be unable to compete with men in the workplace and in other endeavors. Americans who believe that abortion should be restricted press countervailing arguments about modern developments. They note that attitudes about the pregnancy of unmarried women have changed drastically, that federal and state laws ban discrimination on the basis of pregnancy, that leave for pregnancy and childbirth are now guaranteed by law in many cases, that the costs of medical care associated with pregnancy are covered by insurance or government assistance that states have increasingly adopted safe haven laws, which generally allow women to drop off babies anonymously, and that a woman who puts her newborn up for adoption today has little reason to fear that the baby will not find a suitable home. They also claim that many people now have a new appreciation of fetal life, and that when prospective parents who want to have a child view a sonogram, they typically have no doubt that what they see is their daughter or son. Both sides make important policy arguments, but supporters of Roe and Casey must show that this court has the authority to weigh those arguments and decide how abortion may be regulated in the states. They have failed to make that showing, and we thus return the power to weigh those arguments to the people and their elected representatives. D. 1. The dissent is very candid that it cannot show that a constitutional right to abortion has any foundation, let alone a deeply rooted one, in this nation's history and tradition. Glucksburg, 521 U.S. at 721. The dissent does not identify any pre-Roe authority that supports such a right. No state constitutional provision or statute no federal or state judicial precedent, not even a scholarly treatise. Nor does the dissent dispute the fact that abortion was illegal at common law, at least after quickening, that the 19th century saw a trend toward criminalization of pre-quickening abortions, that by 1868 a supermajority of states, at least 26 of 37, had enacted statutes criminalizing abortion at all stages of pregnancy, that by the late 1950s, at least 46 states prohibited abortion, quote, however and whenever performed, except if necessary to save, quote, 
the life of the mother. Roe, 410 U.S. at 139. And that when Roe was decided in 1973, similar statutes were still in effect in 30 states. The dissent's failure to engage with this long tradition is devastating to its position. We have held that the, quote, established method of substantive due process analysis, end quote, requires that an enumerated right be, quote, deeply rooted in this nation's history and tradition, end quote, before it can be recognized as a component of the liberty protected in the due process clause. Glucksburg, 520 U.S. at 721. Compare also Tim's, 586 U.S. But despite the dissent's professed fidelity to stare decisis, it fails to seriously engage with that important precedent, which it cannot possibly satisfy. The dissent attempts to obscure this failure by misrepresenting our application of Glucksburg. The dissent suggests that we have focused only on, quote, the legal status of abortion in the 19th century, end quote. But our review of this nation's tradition extends well past that period. As explained, for more than a century after 1868, including, quote, another half century after women gained the constitutional right to vote in 1920, it was firmly established that laws prohibiting abortion like the Texas law at issue in Roe were permissible exercises of state regulatory authority. And today, another half century later, more than half of the states have asked us to overrule Roe and Casey. The dissent cannot establish that a right to abortion has ever been part of this nation's tradition. 2. Because the dissent cannot argue that the abortion right is rooted in this nation's history and tradition, it contends that the constitutional tradition is, quote, not captured whole at a single moment, and that its, quote, meaning gains content from the long sweep of our history and from successive judicial precedents, post at 18. This vague formulation imposes no clear restraints on what Justice White called the, quote, exercise of raw judicial power, Roe, 410 U.S. at 222, dissenting opinion. And while the dissent claims that its standard, quote, does not mean anything goes, end quote, post at 17, any real restraints are hard to discern. The largely limitless reach of the dissenter's standard is illustrated by the way they apply it here. First, if the, quote, long sweep of history imposes any restraint on the recognition of unenumerated rights, then Roe was surely wrong, since abortion was never allowed, except to save the life of the mother, in a majority of states for over 100 years before that decision was handed down. Second, it is impossible to defend Roe based on prior precedent because all of the precedents Roe cited, including Griswold and Eisenstadt, were critically different for a reason that we have explained. None of those cases involved the destruction of what Roe called, quote, potential life. So without support in history or relevant precedent, Roe's reasoning cannot be defended even under the dissent's proposed test, and the dissent is forced to rely solely on the fact that a constitutional right to abortion was recognized in Roe, and later decisions that accepted Roe's interpretation. Under the doctrine of stare decisis, those precedents are entitled to careful and respectful consideration, and we engage in that analysis below. But as the court has reiterated time and time again, adherence to precedent is not, quote, an inexorable command. Kimball v. Marvel Entertainment, LLC, 576 U.S. 446, 455, 2015. There are occasions when past decisions should be overruled, 
And as we will explain, this is one of them. Three, the most striking feature of the dissent is the absence of any serious discussion of the legitimacy of the state's interest in protecting fetal life. This is evident in the analogy that the dissent draws between the abortion right and the rights recognized in Griswold, contraception, Eisenstadt, same, Lawrence, sexual conduct with member of the same sex, and Obergefell, same-sex marriage. Perhaps this is designed to stoke unfounded fear that our decision will imperil those other rights. But the dissent's analogy is objectionable for a more important reason. What it reveals about the dissent's views on the protection of what Roe called potential life. The exercise of the rights at issue in Griswold, Eisenstadt, Lawrence, and Abergefell does not destroy a potential life. But an abortion has that effect. So if the rights at issue in those cases are fundamentally the same as the right recognized in Roe and Casey, the implication is clear. The Constitution does not permit the states to regard the destruction of a potential life as a matter of any significance. That view is evident throughout the dissent. The dissent has much to say about the effects of pregnancy on women, the burdens of motherhood, and the difficulties faced by poor women. These are important concerns. However, the dissent evinces no similar regard for a state's interest in protecting prenatal life. The dissent repeatedly praises the, quote, balance, post at 2, 6, 8, 10, 12, that the viability line strikes between a woman's liberty interest and the state's interest in prenatal life. But for reasons we discuss later, and given in the opinion of the Chief Justice, post at 2 to 5, opinion concurring in judgment, the viability line makes no sense. It was not adequately justified in Roe, and the dissent does not even try to defend it today. Nor does it identify any other point in a pregnancy after which a state is permitted to prohibit the destruction of a fetus. Our opinion is not based on any view about if and when prenatal life is entitled to any of the rights enjoyed after birth. The dissent, by contrast, would impose on the people a particular theory about when the rights of personhood begin. According to the dissent, the Constitution requires the states to regard a fetus as lacking even the most basic human right to live, at least until an arbitrary point in a pregnancy has passed. Nothing in the Constitution or in our nation's legal traditions authorizes the court to adopt that, quote, theory of life. Post at 8. 3. We next consider whether the doctrine of stare decisis counsels continued acceptance of Roe and Casey. Stare decisis plays an important role in our case law, and we have explained that it serves many valuable ends. It protects the interests of those who have taken action in reliance on a past decision. See Casey, 505 U.S. at 586, Joint Opinion. See also Payne v. Tennessee, 501 U.S., 808, 828, 1991. It, quote, reduces incentives for challenging settled precedents, saving parties and courts the expense of endless relitigation. Kimball. 576 U.S. at 455. It fosters even-handed decision-making by requiring that like cases be decided in a like manner. Payne, 501 U.S. at 827. It, quote, contributes to the actual and perceived integrity of the judicial process. IBID. And it restrains judicial hubris 
and reminds us to respect the judgment of those who have grappled with important questions in the past. Quote, Precedent is a way of accumulating and passing down the learning of past generations, a font of established wisdom richer than what can be found in any single judge or panel of judges. N. Gorsuch, A Republic, If You Can Keep It, 217, 2019. We have long recognized, however, that stare decisis is, quote, not an inexorable command, Pearson versus Callahan, and it, quote, is at its weakest when we interpret the Constitution, Agostini versus Felton. It has been said that it is sometimes more important that an issue, quote, be settled than that it be settled right. Kimball, 576, U.S. at 455. Quoting Burnett versus Colorado Oil and Gas Company, Brandeis J. dissenting. But when it comes to the interpretation of the Constitution, the, quote, great charter of our liberties, which was meant, quote, to endure through a long lapse of ages, Martin versus Hunter's lessee, we place a high value on having the matter, quote, settled right. In addition, when one of our constitutional decisions goes astray, the country is usually stuck with the bad decision unless we correct our own mistake. An erroneous constitutional decision can be fixed by amending the Constitution. But our Constitution is notoriously hard to amend. Therefore, in appropriate circumstances, we must be willing to reconsider and, if necessary, overrule constitutional decisions. Some of our most important constitutional decisions have overruled prior precedents. We mention three. In Brown v. Board of Education, the court repudiated the separate but equal doctrine, which had allowed states to maintain racially segregated schools and other facilities. In so doing, the court overruled the infamous decision in Plessy v. Ferguson, along with six other Supreme Court precedents that had applied the separate but equal rule. See Brown, 347 U.S. at 491. In West Coast Hotel Company v. Parrish, 300 U.S. 379, 1937, the court overruled Adkins v. Children's Hospital of D.C., 261 U.S. 525, 1923, which had held that a law setting minimum wages for women violated the liberty protected by the Fifth Amendment's Due Process Clause. West Coast Hotel signaled the demise of an entire line of important precedents that had protected an individual liberty right against state and federal health and welfare legislation. See Lochner v. New York, 1905, holding invalid a law setting maximum working hours. Coppage v. Kansas, 236 U.S. 1, 1915, holding invalid a law banning contracts forbidding employees to join a union. J. Burns Baking Company v. Bryan, 264 U.S. 504, 1924, holding invalid laws fixing the weight of loaves of bread. Finally, in West Virginia, Board of Education v. Barnett, 319 U.S. 624, 1943, after the lapse of only three years, the court overruled Minersville School District v. Gobitis, 310 U.S. 586, 1940, and held that public school students could not be compelled to salute the flag in violation of their sincere beliefs. Barnett stands out because nothing had changed during the intervening period other than the court's belated recognition that its earlier decision had been seriously wrong. On many other occasions, this court has overruled important constitutional decisions. We include a partial list in the footnote that follows. Without these decisions, American constitutional law as we know it would be unrecognizable, and this would be a different country. No justice of this court has ever argued that the court should never overrule a constitutional decision. But overruling a precedent is a serious matter. It is not a step that should be taken lightly. Our cases have attempted to provide a framework for deciding when a precedent should be overruled, and they have identified factors that should be considered in making such a decision. Janus versus state, county, and municipal employees, 
585 U.S. 2018. In this case, five factors weigh strongly in favor of overruling Roe and Casey. The nature of their error, the quality of their reasoning, the workability of the rules they imposed on the country, their disruptive effect on other areas of the law, and the absence of concrete reliance. A. The nature of the court's error. An erroneous interpretation of the Constitution is always important, but some are more damaging than others. The infamous decision in Plessy v. Ferguson was one such decision. It betrayed our commitment to, quote, equality before the law, 163 U.S. at 562, Harlan J. dissenting. It was, quote, egregiously wrong on the day it was decided, see Ramos, 590 U.S., and as the Solicitor General agreed at oral argument, it should have been overruled at the earliest opportunity. Roe was also egregiously wrong and deeply damaging. For reasons already explained, Roe's constitutional analysis was far outside the bounds of any reasonable interpretation of the various constitutional provisions to which it vaguely pointed. Roe was on a collision course with the Constitution from the day it was decided. Casey perpetuated its errors, and those errors do not concern some arcane corner of the law of little importance to the American people. Rather, wielding nothing but, quote, raw judicial power, Roe 410 U.S. at 222, White J. dissenting, the court usurped the power to address a question of profound moral and social importance that the Constitution unequivocally leaves for the people. Casey described itself as calling both sides of the national controversy to resolve their debate, but in doing so, Casey necessarily declared a winning side. Those on the losing side, those who sought to advance the state's interest in fetal life, could no longer seek to persuade their elective representatives to adopt policies consistent with their views. The court short-circuited the democratic process by closing it to the large number of Americans who dissented in any respect from Roe. Quote, Roe fanned into life an issue that has inflamed our national politics in general and has obscured with its smoke the selection of justices to this court in particular ever since. Casey, 505 U.S., at 995-996, to 996, Opinion of Scalia, J. Together, Roe and Casey represent an error that cannot be allowed to stand. As the court's landmark decision in West Coast Hotel illustrates, the court has previously overruled decisions that wrongly removed an issue from the people and the democratic process. As Justice White later explained, quote, Decisions that find in the Constitution principles or values that cannot fairly be read into that document usurp the people's authority, for such decisions represent choices that the people have never made and that they cannot disavow through corrective legislation. For this reason, it is essential that this court maintain the power to restore authority to its proper possessors by correcting constitutional decisions that on reconsideration, are found to be mistaken. Thornburg, 476 U.S. at 787, dissenting opinion. B. The quality of the reasoning. Under our precedence, the quality of the reasoning in a prior case has an important bearing on whether it should be reconsidered. See Janus, 585 U.S. In Part 2, we explain why Roe was incorrectly decided. But that decision was more than just wrong. It stood on exceptionally weak grounds. Roe found that the Constitution implicitly conferred a right to obtain an abortion. But it failed to ground its decision in text, history, or precedent. It relied on an erroneous historical narrative. 
It devoted great attention to, and presumably relied on, matters that have no bearing on the meaning of the Constitution. It disregarded the fundamental difference between the precedents on which it relied and the question before the court. It concocted an elaborate set of rules, with different restrictions for each trimester of pregnancy. But it did not explain how this veritable code could be teased out of anything in the Constitution, the history of abortion laws, prior precedent, or any other cited source. And its most important rule, that states cannot protect fetal life prior to viability, was never raised by any party and has never been plausibly explained. Rowe's reasoning quickly drew scathing scholarly criticism, even from supporters of broad access to abortion. The Casey plurality, while reaffirming Rowe's central holding, pointedly refrained from endorsing most of its reasoning. It revised the textual basis for the abortion right, silently abandoned Rowe's erroneous historical narrative, and jettisoned the trimester framework. But it replaced that scheme with an arbitrary undue burden test and relied on an exceptional version of stare decisis that, as explained below, this court had never before applied and has never invoked since. 1a. The weaknesses in Rowe's reasoning are well known. Without any grounding in the constitutional text, history, or precedent, it imposed on the entire country a detailed set of rules much like those that one might expect to find in a statute or regulation. See 410 U.S. at 163 to 164. Dividing pregnancy into three trimesters, the court imposed special rules for each. During the first trimester, the court announced, quote, the abortion decision and its effectuation must be left to the medical judgment of the pregnant woman's attending physician. After that point, a state's interest in regulating abortion for the sake of a woman's health became compelling, and accordingly, a state could, quote, regulate the abortion procedure in ways that are reasonably related to maternal health. Finally, in, quote, the stage subsequent to viability, end quote, which in 1973 roughly coincided with the beginning of the third trimester, the state's interest in, quote, the potentiality of human life, end quote, became compelling, and therefore a state could, quote, regulate and even proscribe abortion except where it is necessary in appropriate medical judgment for the preservation of the life or health of the mother, end quote. This elaborate scheme was the court's own brainchild. Neither party advocated the trimester framework, nor did either party or any amicus argue that viability should mark the point at which the scope of the abortion right and a state's regulatory authority should be substantially transformed. See Brief for Appellant and Brief for Appellee in Roe v. Wade, OT 1972. See also C. Forsyth, Abuse of Discretion, The Inside Story of Roe v. Wade, 127-141-2012. B. Not only did this scheme resemble the work of a legislature, but the court made little effort to explain how these rules could be deduced from any of the sources on which constitutional decisions are usually based. We have already discussed Roe's treatment of constitutional text, and the opinion failed to show that history, precedent, or any other cited source supported its scheme. Roe featured a lengthy survey of history, but much of its discussion was irrelevant, and the court made no effort to explain why it was included. For example, multiple paragraphs were devoted to an account of the views and practices of ancient civilizations where infanticide was widely accepted. See 410 U.S. at 130 to 132, discussing ancient Greek and Roman practices. When it came to the most important historical fact, how the states regulated abortion when the 14th Amendment was adopted, the court said almost nothing. It allowed that states had tightened their abortion laws, quote, in the middle and late 19th century, 
but it implied that these laws might have been enacted not to protect fetal life, but to further, quote, a Victorian social concern about, quote, illicit sexual conduct. Roe's failure even to note the overwhelming consensus of state laws in effect in 1868 is striking. And what it said about the common law was simply wrong. Relying on two discredited articles by an abortion advocate, the court erroneously suggested, contrary to Bracton, Coke, Hale, Blackstone, and a wealth of other authority, that the common law had probably never really treated post-quickening abortion as a crime. CID at 136, quote, it now appears doubtful that abortion was ever firmly established as a common law crime, even with respect to the destruction of a quick fetus. End quote. This erroneous understanding appears to have played an important part in the court's thinking because the opinion cited, quote, the lenity of the common law, end quote, as one of the four factors that informed its decision. After surveying history, the opinion spent many paragraphs conducting the sort of fact-finding that might be undertaken by a legislative committee. This included a lengthy account of the, quote, position of the American Medical Association and, quote, the position of the American Public Health Association, as well as the vote by the American Bar Association's House of Delegates in February 1972 on proposed abortion legislation. Also noted were a British judicial decision handed down in 1939 and a new British abortion law enacted in 1967. The court did not explain why these sources shed light on the meaning of the Constitution, and not one of them adopted or advocated anything like the scheme that Roe imposed on the country. Finally, after all this, the court turned to precedent. Citing a broad array of cases, the court found support for a constitutional, quote, right of personal privacy. But it conflated two very different meanings of the term. The right to shield information from disclosure and the right to make and implement important personal decisions without governmental interference. See Whalen v. Roe, 429 U.S. 589, 599-600, 1977. Only the cases involving the second sense of the term could have any possible relevance to the abortion issue, and some of the cases in that category involved personal decisions that were obviously very, very far afield. See Pierce, 268 U.S. 510, right to send children to religious school. Meyer, 262 U.S. 390, right to have children receive German language instruction. What remained was a handful of cases having something to do with marriage. Loving, 388, U.S. 1, right to marry a person of a different race. Or procreation. Skinner, 316, U.S. 535, right not to be sterilized. Griswold, 381, U.S. 479, right of married persons to obtain contraceptives. Eisenstadt, 405 U.S., 438, same for unmarried persons. But none of these decisions involved what is distinctive about abortion, its effect on what Roe termed potential life. When the court summarized the basis for the scheme it imposed on the country, it asserted that its rules were, quote, consistent with, end quote, the following. One, quote, the relative weights of the respective interests involved. Two, quote, the lessons and examples of medical and legal history. Three, quote, the lenity of the common law. And four, quote, the demands of the profound problems of the present day. End quote. Row, 410 U.S. at 165. Put aside the second and third factors, which were based on the court's flawed account of history, and what remains are precisely the sort of considerations that legislative bodies often take into account when they draw lines that accommodate competing interests. The scheme Roe produced 
looked like legislation, and the court provided the sort of explanation that might be expected from a legislative body. C. What Roe did not provide was any cogent justification for the lines it drew. Why, for example, does a state have no authority to regulate first-trimester abortions for the purpose of protecting a woman's health? The court's only explanation was that mortality rates for abortion at that stage were lower than the mortality rates for childbirth. But the court did not explain why mortality rates were the only factor that a state could legitimately consider. Many health and safety regulations aim to avoid adverse health consequences short of death. And the court did not explain why it departed from the normal rule that courts defer to the judgments of legislatures Quote, in areas fraught with medical and scientific uncertainties. End quote. Marshall versus United States, 414 U.S., 417, 427, 1974. An even more glaring deficiency was Roe's failure to justify the critical distinction it drew between pre and post viability abortions. Here is the court's entire explanation. Quote, with respect to the state's important and legitimate interest in potential life, the compelling point is at viability. This is so because the fetus then presumably has the capability of meaningful life outside the womb, 410 U.S. at 163. As Professor Lawrence Tribe has written, quote, clearly this mistakes definition for a syllogism. The definition of a viable fetus is one that is capable of surviving outside the womb. But why is this the point at which the state's interests become compelling? If, as Roe held, a state's interest in protecting prenatal life is compelling, quote, after viability, 410 U.S. at 163, why isn't that interest, quote, equally compelling before viability? Webster versus Reproductive Health Services, 492 U.S., 490, 519, 1989, plurality opinion. Quoting Thornburg, 476 U.S. at 795, White J. dissenting. Roe did not say, and no explanation is apparent. This arbitrary line has not found much support among philosophers and ethicists who have attempted to justify a right to abortion. Some have argued that a fetus should not be entitled to legal protection until it acquires the characteristics that they regard as defining what it means to be a person. Among the characteristics that have been offered as essential attributes to personhood are sentience, self-awareness, the ability to reason, or some combination thereof. By this logic, it would be an open question whether even born individuals, including young children or those afflicted with certain developmental or medical conditions, merit protection as persons. But even if one takes the view that personhood begins when a certain attribute or combination of attributes is acquired, it is very hard to see why viability should mark the point where personhood begins. The most obvious problem with any such argument is that viability is heavily dependent on factors that have nothing to do with the characteristics of a fetus. One is the state of neonatal care at a particular point in time. Due to the development of new equipment and improved practices, the viability line has changed over the years. In the 19th century, a fetus may not have been viable until the 32nd or 33rd week of pregnancy, or even later. When Roe was decided, viability was gauged at roughly 28 weeks. C410 U.S. at 160. Today, respondents draw the line at 23 or 24 weeks. Brief for respondents, 8. So, according to Rowe's logic, states now have a compelling interest in protecting a fetus with a gestational age of, say, 26 weeks. But in 1973, states did not have an interest in protecting an identical fetus. How can that be? 
Viability also depends on the, quote, quality of the available medical facilities. Colotti versus Franklin, 439 U.S., 379, 396, 1979. Thus, a 24-week-old fetus may be viable if a woman gives birth in a city with hospitals that provide advanced care for very premature babies. But if the woman travels to a remote area, far from any such hospital, the fetus may no longer be viable. On what ground could the constitutional status of a fetus depend on the pregnant woman's location? And if viability is meant to mark a line having universal moral significance, can it be that a fetus that is viable in a big city in the United States has a privileged moral status not enjoyed by an identical fetus in a remote area of a poor country? In addition, as the court once explained, viability is not really a hard and fast line. A physician determining a particular fetus's odds of surviving outside the womb must consider, quote, a number of variables, including, quote, gestational age, fetal weight, a woman's, quote, general health and nutrition, the, quote, quality of the available medical facilities, and other factors. It is thus, quote, only with difficulty, end quote, that a physician can estimate the probability of a particular fetus's survival. And even if each fetus's probability of survival could be ascertained with certainty, settling on a, quote, probability of survival that should count as viability is another matter. Is a fetus viable with a 10% chance of survival? 25%? 50%? Can such a judgment be made by a state? And can a state specify a gestational age limit that applies in all cases? Or must these difficult questions be left entirely to the individual, quote, attending physician on the particular facts of the case before him? The viability line, which Casey termed Rowe's central rule, makes no sense. And it is telling that other countries almost uniformly eschew such a line. The court has thus asserted raw judicial power to impose, as a matter of constitutional law, a uniform viability rule that allowed the states less freedom to regulate abortion than the majority of Western democracies enjoy. D. All in all, Roe's reasoning was exceedingly weak, and academic commentators including those who agreed with the decision as a matter of policy, were unsparing in their criticism. John Hart Ely famously wrote that Roe was, quote, not constitutional law and gave almost no sense of an obligation to try to be. Ely 947. Archibald Cox, who served as Solicitor General under President Kennedy, commented that Roe, quote, reads like a set of hospital rules and regulations, that, quote, neither historian, layman, nor lawyer will be persuaded are part of the Constitution, end quote. The role of the Supreme Court in American government, 113 to 114, 1976. Lawrence Tribe wrote that, quote, even if there is a need to divide pregnancy into several segments with lines that clearly identify the limits of governmental power, interest balancing of the form the court pursues fails to justify any of the lines actually drawn. Mark Tushnet termed Roe a, quote, totally unreasoned judicial opinion, red, white, and blue, a critical analysis of constitutional law, 54, 1988. See also P. Bobbitt, Constitutional Fate, 157, 1982. Despite Roe's weaknesses, its reach was steadily extended in the years that followed the court struck down laws requiring that second trimester abortions be performed only in hospitals. Akron v. Akron Center for Reproductive Health, Incorporated, 462 U.S. 416, 433 to 439, 1983. That minors obtain parental consent. Planned Parenthood of Central Missouri v. Danforth, 428 U.S. 52, 74, 1976. 
that women give written consent after being informed of the status of the developing prenatal life and the risks of abortion. Akron 462 U.S. at 442 to 445. That women wait 24 hours for an abortion. That a physician determine viability in a particular manner. Kulati 439 U.S. at 390 to 397. That a physician performing a post-viability abortion use the technique most likely to preserve the life of the fetus. And that fetal remains be treated in a humane and sanitary manner. Akron, 462 U.S., at 451 to 452. Justice White complained that the court was engaging in, quote, unrestrained imposition of its own extra-constitutional value preferences. Thornburg, 476 U.S., at 794, dissenting opinion. And the United States, as amicus curiae, asked the court to overrule Roe five times in the decade before Casey, C-505 U.S. at 844, joint opinion, and then asked the court to overrule it once more in Casey itself. 2. When Casey revisited Roe almost 20 years later, very little of Roe's reasoning was defended or preserved. The court abandoned any reliance on a privacy right and instead grounded the abortion right entirely on the 14th Amendment's due process clause. 505 U.S. at 846. The court did not reaffirm Roe's erroneous account of abortion history. In fact, none of the justices in the majority said anything about the history of the abortion right. And as for precedent, the court relied on essentially the same body of cases that Roe had cited. Thus, with respect to the standard grounds for constitutional decision-making, text, history, and precedent, Casey did not attempt to bolster Roe's reasoning. The court also made no real effort to remedy one of the greatest weaknesses in Roe's analysis, its much-criticized discussion of viability. The court retained what it called Roe's central holding, that a state may not regulate pre-viability abortions for the purpose of protecting fetal life, but it provided no principled defense of the viability line. 505 U.S. at 860, 870-871. Instead, it merely rephrased what Roe had said, stating that viability marked the point at which, quote, the independent existence of a second life can in reason and fairness be the object of state protection that now overrides the rights of the woman. 505 U.S. at 870. Why, quote, reason and fairness, demanded that the line be drawn at viability the court did not explain. And the justices who authored the controlling opinion conspicuously failed to say that they agreed with the viability rule. Instead, they candidly acknowledged, quote, the reservations some of us may have in reaffirming that holding of Roe. The controlling opinion criticized and rejected Roe's trimester scheme. 505 U.S. at 872, and substituted a new undue burden test. But the basis for this test was obscure. And as we will explain, the test is full of ambiguities and is difficult to apply. Casey, in short, either refused to reaffirm or rejected important aspects of Rowe's analysis, failed to remedy glaring deficiencies in Rowe's reasoning, endorsed what it termed Roe's central holding, while suggesting that a majority might not have thought it was correct, provided no new support for the abortion right other than Roe's status as precedent, and imposed a new and problematic test with no firm grounding in constitutional text, history, or precedent. As discussed below, Casey also deployed a novel version of the doctrine of stare decisis. This new doctrine did not account for the profound wrongness of the decision in Roe and placed great weight on an intangible form of reliance with little, if any, basis in prior case law. Stare decisis does not command the preservation of such a decision. C. Workability Our precedents counsel that another important consideration in deciding whether a precedent should be overruled 
is whether the rule it imposes is workable. That is, whether it can be understood and applied in a consistent and predictable manner. Montejo versus Louisiana, 556 U.S. 778, 792, 2009. Patterson versus McLean Credit Union, 491 U.S. 164, 173, 1989. Gulfstream Aerospace Corp. versus Maya Commas Corp., 485 U.S. 271, 283 to 284, 1988. Casey's Undue Burden Test has scored poorly on the workability scale. 1. Problems begin with the very concept of an undue burden. As Justice Scalia noted in his Casey partial dissent, determining whether a burden is due or undue is, quote, inherently standardless. 505 U.S. at 992. See also June Medical Services, LLC v. Rousseau, 591 U.S., 2020. Gorsuch J. Dissenting. Quote, Whether a burden is deemed undue depends heavily on which factors the judge considers and how much weight he accords each of them. End quote. The Casey plurality tried to put meaning into the, quote, undue burden test by setting out three subsidiary rules. But these rules created their own problems. The first rule is that, quote, a provision of law is invalid if its purpose or effect is to place a substantial obstacle in the path of a woman seeking an abortion before the fetus attains viability, 505 U.S. at 878. But whether a particular obstacle qualifies as substantial is often open to reasonable debate. In the sense relevant here, substantial means, quote, of ample or considerable amount, quantity or size, Random House Webster's Unabridged Dictionary, 1897, Second edition, 2001. Huge burdens are plainly substantial, and trivial ones are not. But in between these extremes, there is a wide gray area. This ambiguity is a problem, and the second rule, which applies at all stages of a pregnancy, muddies things further. It states that measures designed, quote, to ensure that the woman's choice is informed, end quote, are constitutional, so long as they do not impose, quote, an undue burden on the right. Casey, 505 U.S. at 878. To the extent that this rule applies to pre-viability abortions, it overlaps with the first rule and appears to impose a different standard. Consider a law that imposes an insubstantial obstacle but serves little purpose. As applied to a pre-viability abortion, would such a regulation be constitutional on the ground that it does not impose a substantial obstacle? Or would it be unconstitutional on the ground that it creates an undue burden? Because the burden it imposed, though slight, outweighs its negligible benefits. Casey does not say. And this ambiguity would lead to confusion down the line. The third rule complicates the picture even more. Under that rule, quote, unnecessary health regulations that have the purpose or effect of presenting a substantial obstacle to a woman seeking an abortion, impose an undue burden on the right. Casey, 505 U.S. at 878. This rule contains no fewer than three vague terms. It includes the two already discussed, undue burden and substantial obstacle, even though they are inconsistent. And it adds a third ambiguous term when it refers to, quote, unnecessary health regulations. The term necessary has a range of meanings, from essential to merely useful. See Black's Law Dictionary, 928, 5th edition, 1979. American Heritage Dictionary of the English Language, 877, 1971. Casey did not explain the sense in which the term is used in this rule. In addition to these problems, one more applies to all three rules. They all call on courts to examine a law's effect on women, but a regulation may have a very different impact on different women for a variety of reasons, including their places of residence, financial resources, family situations, work and personal obligations, knowledge about fetal development and abortion, psychological and emotional disposition and condition, and the firmness of their desire to obtain abortions. 
In order to determine whether a regulation presents a substantial obstacle to women, a court needs to know which set of women it should have in mind, and how many of the women in this set must find that an obstacle is substantial. Casey provided no clear answer to these questions. It's said that a regulation is unconstitutional if it imposes a substantial obstacle, quote, in a large fraction of cases in which it is relevant, 505 U.S. at 895. But there is obviously no clear line between a fraction that is large and one that is not. Nor is it clear what the court meant by, quote, cases in which a regulation is, quote, relevant. These ambiguities have caused confusion and disagreement. Compare Whole Woman's Health versus Hellerstedt, 579 U.S. 582, 627 to 628, 2016. 2. The difficulty of applying Casey's new rules surfaced in that very case. The controlling opinion found that Pennsylvania's 24-hour waiting period requirement and its informed consent provision did not impose, quote, undue burdens, Casey 505 U.S. at 881 to 887. But Justice Stevens, applying the same test, reached the opposite result at 920 to 922, opinion concurring in part and dissenting in part. That did not bode well. And then Chief Justice Rehnquist aptly observed that, quote, the undue burden standard presents nothing more workable than the trimester framework. The ambiguity of the undue burden test also produced disagreement in later cases. In Whole Woman's Health, the court adopted the cost-benefit interpretation of the test, stating that, quote, the rule announced in Casey requires that courts consider the burdens a law imposes on abortion access together with the benefits those laws confer. 579 U.S. at 607. But five years later, a majority of the justices rejected that interpretation. See June Medical, 591 U.S. Four justices reaffirmed Whole Woman's Health instruction to, quote, weigh a law's benefits against the burdens it imposes on abortion access, 591 U.S. But the Chief Justice, who cast the deciding vote, argued that, quote, nothing about Casey suggested that a weighing of costs and benefits of an abortion regulation was a job for the courts. And the four justices in dissent rejected the plurality's interpretation of Casey. See 591 U.S. Quote, five members of the court reject the whole woman's health cost-benefit standard. This court's experience applying Casey has confirmed Chief Justice Rehnquist's prescient diagnosis that the undue burden standard was, quote, not built to last, Casey 505 U.S. at 965, opinion concurring in judgment in part and dissenting in part. 3. The experience of the courts of appeals provides further evidence that Casey's line between permissible and unconstitutional restrictions, quote, has proved to be impossible to draw with precision. Janus 585, U.S. Casey has generated a long list of circuit conflicts. Most recently, the courts of appeals have disagreed about whether the balancing test from Whole Woman's Health correctly states the undue burden framework. They have disagreed on the legality of parental notification rules. They have disagreed about bans on certain dilation and evacuation procedures. They have disagreed about when an increase in the time needed to reach a clinic constitutes an undue burden. And they have disagreed on whether a state may regulate abortions performed because of the fetus's race, sex, or disability. The courts of appeals have experienced particular difficulty in applying the large fraction of relevant cases test. They have criticized the assignment while reaching unpredictable results and they have candidly outlined Casey's many other problems. Casey's undue burden test has proved to be unworkable. Quote, plucked from nowhere, 505 U.S. at 965, opinion of Rehnquist, C.J. It, quote, seems calculated to perpetuate give-it-a-try litigation, end quote. 
before judges assigned an unwieldy and inappropriate task. Lehnert v. Ferris Faculty Association, 500 U.S. 507 551, 1991. Continued adherence to that standard would undermine, not advance, the, quote, even handed, predictable, and consistent development of legal principles. Payne 501 U.S. at 827. I am a Christian with the searching and skeptical mind of an atheist. I don't want to believe anything that isn't true. I know both sides of the looking glass, and I know them with open eyes. I choose Christ's side. I invite you to join me from wherever you stand before the looking glass. That's this week's episode. Thanks for listening, and remember, you can have your religious cake and eat it too. You can have reason, respect for science, a 21st century worldview, and be a Christian.